Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Radiant Others. The man you're listening to behind me is a real legend. He's a living legend. Clarinetist, reed man, composer, educator, Ray Musiker. Let's take a listen. Who is Ray Musiker? Ray Musiker is a klezmer clarinetist. He is a great musician, and at 93 years old, he's still going strong. People who have been around the klezmer world for quite a while will probably remember Ray as a uh, stalwart at klez camp, who was usually leading the advanced master classes. That's how I remember meeting him in the first place. And he would play in the staff concerts, and he was I knew that he was really important and had a deep life in this music. And I would later find out that Ray's brother was the klezmer clarinetist Sam Musiker, who, among other things, recorded the record Taunts with Dave Tarras, which has been a big part of my life as a klezmer musician, especially in the last couple years. Ray actually plays tenor sax and clarinet alongside his brother and Dave Tarras on that record, and it's really special. It's always a real treat to talk to any elder who's been through an entire life of music and is still making music like Ray is. But it's especially special when we're talking to people in our klezmer world where it's hard to find sort of the through line for the music or to meet someone who has had a life that has gone through so many of the music's changes throughout the 20th century in America. This is also a really special episode because we recorded it right before Ray's 93rd birthday for what we call the Ray Musiker 93rd Birthday Project, which was put together mainly by his son, Lee Musiker, who's an incredibly talented musician and a very, very accomplished musician. I spent a day at Ray's house in Long Island with Michael Winograd and Lee and a bunch more of Ray's family for an incredible day of music and remembrances Uh, Michael recorded Lee and Ray playing a bunch of Ray's original compositions as duets, which was incredibly sweet. And then we talked for a long time. A couple days before that, Michael was also over there recording duets of original cantorial pieces that Ray had composed for Lee and Danny Mendelssohn, cantor Daniel Mendelssohn, who, if folks know, is related to the great Jack Mendelssohn, who's been at places like Klez Canada and Yiddish New York. We were also aided in putting all this together by our good friend, Pete Ruszewski. So this is a really exciting conversation. We get to hear about Ray's life, Ray's life as a musician, and some pretty incredible highlights of his life and career, really from his early days until today. I'd love to tell you all about it, but I don't want to spoil all the cool things you're going to hear about in today's interview. So before we get started, I just really want to thank especially Lee, musiker for all his hard work and dedication in making this happen and 
to Ray for just being a great person, a great musician, and super fun to talk to. And before we get started, I just want to say that this episode was recorded last summer before the coronavirus pandemic that we find ourselves in. So it's not much that isn't already being said many places better than what I could say. I'll just say that I hope you all are taking it easy. I hope you all are being safe. I hope you all have the resources you need to survive and that you're able to feel connected to your loved ones. It's really important right now. So that's pretty much it for me. Without further ado, let's hear from Ray Musiker. Very nice. All right, so woo, it's been a day already. We are here at uh, the house of the one and only Ray Musiker, who is doing fantastic, looking great, playing his ass off. You know, we're, it's, it's been a pleasure to be here all day. My pleasure. It's been a long time since I've seen you. And, uh, you know, those Klez Camp was the last time, maybe in the, in the mid-2000s. When did you first go to Klez Camp? Do you remember? I believe it was 2006, if I'm not mistaken. It was mistaken. the last one that you that were was, there. That was the last one? 96. And we'd 96. have to go back 10 years at least. Uh-huh. I believe it was in Parksville, New York. That Klez Camp. Okay, yeah. Was it the Paramount Hotel? At the, I believe it was the Paramount Hotel. I, was going, I, I, I wasn't there. I missed, on route I missed set, it. Right on Route 17. Okay, I missed the Paramount years. It's almost like going into like a weird bunker, except it was a hotel, right? A Klezmer right, bunker. Right. Well, for me, the experience of going to Klez Camp meant that I've reached another step in my career because club dates were changing and the, the lesser desired thing was to go to Klez Camp. Hmm. And I found that now I had reached a certain point where Klez Camp had to be included. I could not let it go by and say, oh, this is not for me. But being a, a teacher, I figured that if I'm going to go up to Klez Camp, I better have a lesson plan. Mm -hmm. So I had my idea about want to teach up there by grabbing a handful of Bulgars. And I believe that's the time I met uh, Michael, and he played one of my Bulgars. That was my teaching material. I said, what do you teach at Klez Camp? You can't, you're not really teaching the instrument because it, that's not what people are there. People come to Klez Camp, they already have their bag of tricks. Yeah. So, and what they want to do is kind of expand on what they hear and learn new, new things. So it was quite a challenge at, in terms of the pedagogy of coming to Klez Camp and having something to offer based upon my player as a Klezmer. Yeah, yourself as a Klezmer. As a Klezmer, right. Yeah. Well, that's great. So let's talk about you as a klezmer musician. I mean, okay, so first of all, I always like to get this out of the way early, especially for people who were around a little bit in different times. You know, when I grew up and I learned about this music, I learned about klezmer music played by klezmer musicians. But when you were growing up, that's not what they called it, right? The musicians that I was introduced to at first were klezmer musicians. So they called themselves, you would think of this they, as a klezmer they, musician. They, they, they would form a capella, uh -huh. but it was really still a pickup band of immigrant 
musicians. Now, if I may expand on that, please. Some some of the names that were around. There was a barber in Brownsville named Nathan Ritholtz. Now, Ritholtz, I believe he played C clarinet and did not play it that well, but he was a barber, but he also played clarinet, and he had two cards. When someone came into the barber shop for a haircut, he says, he says, what are you taking the haircut for? He says, coming up. So he says, here's my card. He says, I and I think it was called the Valsheva Capella, out of Warsaw, of course. Right. So there were pickup bands, but the musicians that I first associated with were the older musicians, the immigrant generation, and that's, those were the first so-called gigs that I did, were not American music because that was very much isolated for society music and all the other music was really either Jewish ethnic klezmer music or Italian folk music with tarantellas and uh, Italian mazurka. That was life then. So the club date musician, like the first ones that I played with, were my father's buddies and that's that was the beginning. Of, of my career was playing for that generation. So what you had to learn how to play was a Russian share. You had to play a Russian waltz. I mean, I'm not going to start singing now, but <laughs> but there are Russian waltz. Whatever wal you like. Yeah, yeah. This was so-called Hasana music. Yeah. Because this was not the time of bar mitzvahs yet. This is pre Big party bar mitzvahs. My bar mitzvah was just go to shul. You do, you do the haftari, you do, and then afterwards they throw the candy at you and you go home and you eat cholent. <laughs> That's right, as one does on a Saturday right, afternoon. Right, but the point being that the musicians that I first met were the older musicians and I had to learn to play through osmosis the bag of dance music that was required of a klezmer band. But remember, this was working music. This was for people that came over and asked for a Russian share or a polka. People asked for the music from way back in Europe. So this was their music that, that they was their knew. music, yeah. It wasn't as if you were introducing yeah. it to anybody. Yeah. So in other words, your question is like, when did I get associated with contemporary people? Well, sure. I, I think so. But contemporary musicians had not formulated into American music yet. As I mentioned in the other room, how Tin Pan Alley started grinding out all the songs of the late 30s and early 40s. And uh, and what, what era are we talking about when you start playing your gigs? Well, born in 26, in uh, 38, I'd be 12. Mm -hmm. So 14... And, uh, and and you're playing clarinet or saxophone and or whatever I, they let you? I already was playing alto sax as well as clarinet. Mm -hmm. Better on clarinet because saxophone, like most of the klezmer musicians, was an afterthought. They picked it up. Uh, that, that's a whole other thing about which instruments married in because many fiddle players took up the tenor sax that and wild? that became their double. They, yeah, thing. like I many of the imagine. fiddle players, 
I can't roll off names, but that became one of the things. But at that time, I was playing alto sax, not well. Yeah. I mean, and, whatever, you're 14. Yeah. For, I, I probably yeah. wouldn't have made it through a whole gig at 14. Right, but this was Hasana music. Yeah. However, there was already the need for some American music. So you took music from the stock orchestrations, and it's like taking a banana, throwing the skin away, and most of the banana as well. <laughs> because yeah. because what you, what was left was the piano part, and if you ever saw the piano parts, they didn't write chord symbols for these musicians. They wrote clusters. So if you had to play like a C major six chord, a C E G A, they would write four notes, blah, 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 and you, you played them like four to the bar. Yeah. So they wrote out, even for piano players, they wrote out all the clusters like that. Very seldom had a bass player. So all you needed was the piano part. The drummer was a faker. He had to fake everything. As <laughs> you mean the American stuff? Yeah, he was, he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'll yeah, try to swing or something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the but it was really learning the melody. Yeah, and the melodies were the songs that were already important to what was happening in the world, like the the song Second World War songs, the one you'd be so nice to come home to. Yeah. The, the, the whole concept being, I'm away and I'll be coming back. Mm. I'm trying to cycle and I can't do a chronology of the songs now, but the Klezmer musicians, the older ones, some of them couldn't even read, but my father was a, read music, so I would either, if he didn't have that orchestration B-flat first trumpet part, then I would write some melodies for him as well. At 14 or 15? Yeah, in other words, I became my father's music, educating my dad. Yes. The klezmer music was learned by osmosis. If I may jump and make Please. an illusion, like Danny. Danny heard a mother and father, cantors, both mother and father, mm -hmm. right from the cradle. Hey, that by osmosis. He knew all all the, the the cantorial tricks, maybe by age three and a half. Right. So by osmosis, I was exposed to this. So my father didn't teach me other than providing the opportunity for me to hear Europe, mm. to hear Europe as, as a youngster. And the more I heard of klezmer music, the more I wanted to get away from it. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. All right. All right, so the getting away from it was everyone wanted to become American. We want <laughs> American. American. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be known as, as a klezmer musician. Right. To be a klezmer musician means that you were, number one, an illiterate, and musically illiterate, which happened to be the case in many places. They played completely by ear, which is not wrong because you can learn a, a lot just by playing by ear if you're talented. Yeah. That's a, a great motivation. But I don't want to digress from your basic question about the kind of music that was played was European music and the beginning of American music. So after playing a Russian share for relief, maybe you took out three stock arrangement, B-flat trumpet parts, I would need the alto part or else I already knew the melody, so I didn't need it. But my father would set up his silver sta folding stand and put 
the music on. Now, if you know anything about the arrangements on stock arrangements, no, no, no I mean, just, uh, a, just a touch. Uh, all right, let me Please. give you a, a quick. You had to play when it came to the melody. There was a little introduction of about four to eight bars, usually Jack Mason, or then there were some other good stock arrangers, but. The melody starts letter A, and the trumpet player played up to letter B, and then the saxophone play the sax section played. The brass section played letter A, and then at letter B, the saxophone section played the middle part of the song, and then the trumpet brass section came in, played letter C. When I say brass section, it's meaningless because all those parts were thrown out. Mm -hmm. The only you only needed <laughs> you only needed the first trumpet part. Right. No one learned to sing a, or play a second trumpet part right. yeah. or a third part or a fourth part when it was not that not necessary. So my indoctrination started there like if you want to do club dates, you better know the melody. Because if you're going to harmonize the melody, you better know the melody to harmonize too. Right. So, I mean, that means right. That's good. No, so we're getting back to that orchestration. So the trumpet player, who my father learned that you play from letter A to letter B, and then you jump down to continue with the melody, unless you're tired and the clarinet or saxophone player will play the release, what we call the release of the song. So that that's how it pretty much started. There were not really American small bands. There were capellas, pickup bands, and learning to play the melody was, was a throw-off or sparked by that time where American music, people started coming over. Can't you play that song? Mm. So you have to start knowing, knowing what was on the so-called American hit parade. You want to ask me a question or can I digress? <laughs> I think you should just keep going if you've got stuff to say. <laughs> well, what I'd like to address is the going to 2nd Avenue or East 4th Street yes. between Avenue A and Avenue B. Now, there were three or four brothers named Blank. There was Yushka Blank, Shimala Blank, and I think the, the other one that I, was, I know of was Mordechai, Mordechai mm -hmm. but they called him Mordechai. So in other words, it was, and my father happened to pal up, like, like you guys pal up, you have contemporaries. Yushka Blank was my father's friend. Yushka had a music store on East 4th Street and like a shamble run down the way a typical, like, not because he was an immigrant, but it was, a, I recall as a kid, a filthy cluttered place with violin strings, you know, and the rosin and, <laughs> and some sheet music. But he had this store two doors away, Schimmler Blank opened up a competing music store. <laughs> <laughs> and on the other side of the street was Motre. You know what he did? He opened up a music store. No! <laughs> now, can you just imagine, like, if the Sam Ash dynasty, if they were, if Sam Ash had two brothers, yeah. and they all opened up, and they're going to compete with each other, oh and like, goodness. say, I don't want any part of you, I'm going to show... 
But so that was the situation. And now in terms of lineage, you mentioned Manny Blank. Yeah, that was a Manny Blank. Yeah, I think he wrote arrangements also, if I recall, later on. But I don't even remember the lineage because if we, this is not about ancient lineage. No, but no. it's about what experiences. I, but the fact that there were these three brothers that opened up competing music stores, but my father would go to see Yushka, and even in those days, there was a certain kind of humor. If Yushka wanted to speak to my father on the telephone, Evergreen 89437, that was my phone number on Willoughby Avenue in Bed-Stuy. I still remember. Evergreen 89437. Yes. But if Yushka got on the phone, he didn't want to announce who's calling, but he would do this. Musicantele. And then he... Musicantele would be his endearing name for my father. Like musician, mm -hmm. music, the name was Musicant and, and became Musiker, Musicar with my uncles. But Yushka would, so if the telephone rang and if I picked it up, I say, Dad, there's a call for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Well, anyway, so, so much about the blanks. And uh, I think it was Shimmel's son who became, uh, I, Izzy, Izzy Blank, became the first trumpeter for the Metropolitan Opera. Well, that's very nice. Yeah, so he was one that made it. And uh, that will lead to another story if, if you want to hear it. I want to hear all the you stories. You want to hear all the I stories. I love the stories. Yeah. The stories all right. where it's at. Now I'm going to segue over to from... East 4th Street, I think it's further between B and C on East 4th, there was a, a, not a hotel, but it was called, I don't know if it's still in existence, maybe you know, it was called Hennington Hall. No, there, I, I don't think that there's anything there anymore. There now that yeah. was there before. Well, yeah. I, yeah. my That's father, right. we would take the Tompkins Avenue trolley and go on a Saturday, and this is for a shape-up for a Saturday night club date for a chasana. Mm -hmm. They still did not have musicians. They were that casual. Talk about jobs being called casuals. So well, it was so pick-up that it might It was so pick-up that, and in Yiddish, I, I can hear the voice. Uh, like If one asked my father, is a cantalet, the spills heint by nacht. Mm -hmm. Are you playing? He says, playing no, I'm going it. He says, okay, go to B.B. Manor on Lewis Street in Brook. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah the last Forget email. This is like, yeah, yeah know, the, the email, the, the whole pickup idea. I'm, I'm really cycling in because I was a youngster and I'd go with my father. And that was a meeting place of all the immigrant musicians contemporary to my father. Mm. We're touching upon, I mentioned Izzy Blank, who became that trumpet player, yeah. who played for the Met. Now I'll tell you an Izzy Blank story Please. and my father, because this is a very interesting sidelight. Uh, musicians, when the 802 said you cannot play on the seventh day, 
You uh-huh. on one, you have to have a night off, and th- at that time they were cooking out operas seven days a week. Hmm. So, how do you get a sub to play if someone cannot just walk in and play, let's say, the trumpet parts to Aida, which go, I'm, I'm, you, you, you just can't call up and someone say, "Hey, come in and sub for me tonight." So, but my father became the sub for Izzy Blank. Hmm. So how did that swindle work? <laughs> yeah, it worked about okay. my father. By the way, he, my father would take his trumpet case and go to the Metropolitan Opera, uh-huh. never opened the case, and received a check made out to him from the Metropolitan Opera for being the substitute for playing the job, for playing the gig, okay, the but, opera. But my father got the money. Izzy Blank played the seventh night. Okay. That's the point. This way, he did not have to uh, obey the union's uh, oh, stopping. So interesting. And then when my father got the check, he turned it back to Izzy and got some recompense for it, you know. But he did not play the opera wow that's that is a wow so okay. that, that is a, a little slant on the labor relations and the way 802 what how things were working then with, yeah it's like a good idea but in practice yeah, it doesn't quite come yeah so off. so when i in my memoirs i i said you know my father played for the metropolitan opera <laughs> American music, and then how did you think of it as jazz? Like, where did jazz fit in all this? Uh, jazz did not fit in on the club date psychology, even or, with the American or the need songs. With American songs, I think it's either Lester Lannon or one of these offices, which has a big sign which says, "Just play the melody." <laughs> That's great. Yeah, because it's even funny. Like you mentioned, it, you'd be so nice to come home to. But to me, that's a jazz tune growing up. Because I, but, and I know it from 
I mean, I know it's not a jazz tune in the same way as like you know uh, a Jelly Roll Morton song is a jazz tune or something. But it, but you know, if I play that, if I would ever play that song, take solos over it, you know, over a chorus and do that well, thing. But this was something else. Yeah, that's a whole, a whole other discussion about how things like Autumn Leaves can become a jazz song. Right. Certain melodies lend themselves to jazz, but. There was no room for jazz in the sense mm. on club dates. If you played with a big band, then definitely, unless the leader, you're playing something. Jazz was pre pretty much Dixieland jazz. And out of the 12 music, if it's a big band, you had a little jazz group built in. So then you got a, ch a chance to, to play jazz. So for your life as a musician, I mean, did you feel like music was a path for you at, by this point? You know, you're a teenager, right? It was well, pretty clear that this no, was going to be we're, a thing. We're going to get into the whole Let's Sam... get into the whole thing. The whole Sam Musicers <laughs> Your syndrome. Yeah, this syndrome. Exactly. Okay, what's this? What's, yeah, what this is all that? about. Yeah. Put yourself in my place. I'm... I go to clarinet teacher, this Leon Rushenoff, and I am exposed to playing legit clarinet or learning to play clarinet because my first association with music, I played piano before. Oh, cool. I didn't yeah, know that. My, yeah, my late sister Bev started me. She passed when I was 14 years old. Mm, sorry. And when she, when I was like in my, before my bar, bar mitzvah, I'd say around age. 10 to 12, Sam joined Gene Krupa's. He left college to join Gene Krupa's band because it paid well and it was a status thing. And you join, uh, that that is a thing to, I mean, to was, play with. That was one of the top well, bands, right? Because big bands were still viable. They were being used for music, for dancing. They danced to Tommy Dorsey. They danced to Jimmy Dorsey. So in other words, the big bands were, were not up there on stage for a concert like later on. Buddy Rich became a concert yeah. jazz band. Or Stan Kenton or yeah, Stan Kenton. Yes, because then it morphed. So Sam, having done that, now I have an older brother who's a genius. You have this older brother who's old. I was actually wondering because you were talking about you and your dad being together on these gigs. It was part, your brother was older enough that he was off doing he, his own thing, right? But he also was totally exposed to klezmer music. Right, absolutely. Oh, it was so oh clear. He, Sam was born down on the east side, I think, on Manhattan Street. Is there a man, right near the Manhattan Bridge? I forget oh. or. I forgot what street it is, right? But he was born right at the foot of near the uh, Eldridge Street Synagogue. Okay, and, yeah, yeah. And he I'm was, just giving you. He was ten years older, right? Ten years Sam old. was ten years older. Got it. So that in itself was a motivation for me, not to try to out to measure up to Sam. I see. However, later I'll I'll fast forward. Yeah, please. Sam had enough confidence in me to put me on the Tantz album, and he felt that I can do what I can do, and even to play a third clarinet part on it and, and hold the tenor chair on it. So I honor his memory that, and I first understand what a, a leap of faith he did to have his kid brother, at that time I was in my mid-20s most likely, yeah. but 
the fact that I could be trusted into that. So that that was the way my association into the Tantz album. I was the school teacher primarily. And Already not, at that time. Right. And I, I did do my bag of tricks of club dates. I, I showed you the shoebox. Yeah, the, I was all, gonna say. Yeah, all the years of club 1944 dates. 1944 to what, yeah, 2007 yeah, you said? Yeah. And you said $17 for your first club yeah, date. Yeah, the, the, the Which, scale. Then later on, I there was a Class A. If you played at the uh, Plaza Hotel, you got $20 when scales. And if you played at Hennington Hall, then you got $18. That was called Class B. Mm -hmm. And just like we actually went on the internet and found, did a little calculating and figured out that yeah. $17 in 1944 is about 250 today. So you can see, yeah. you know, it's actually yeah. interesting yeah. about how that, all the things, because it's funny, 250 is like, doesn't quite scale up to a, a full-time living unless you're working every day. Which nobody does now. By the way, this is very nice. I'm enjoying this. I'm glad. Because you have the knack of, maybe it's a look on your face, but I am so relaxed. <laughs> maybe it's because I put the clarinet down. Yeah, yeah. We spent all morning, all the rest of the day recording a bunch of beautiful tunes, originals, and then one from Taunts. And we'll talk about Taunts later, but I'm, I think one of the things that I want to think about is, so, so this is a time when you're running away from Klezmer. You said you wanted to get away as far away from it as possible. So how old are you feeling? How old are you when you start feeling this really strongly? Uh, well, I'd say uh, in my early twenties. Yeah. By this time, and in my early, let's see, if I'm twenty, that would make it forty-six. From mm -hmm. twenty-six, forty-six. In forty-six, the Second World War ended in forty-five. Right. So I'm talking one year after the the war. And you have all my contemporaries coming back, and they're already into the GI Bill of Rights, getting married, and just like we talked about the Hasidic business surge because there was a need for musicians, there was a need for a club date format mm. because now the business took a certain turn towards middle class jewelry there was a need f for bands no different than what was happening on sem on uh hennington hall mm -hmm. shape shape up bands so when steven scott there was a contractor and they put bands together not by ability or compatibility uh oh yeah yeah right. but they put them just by bodies so i you you'd find yourself going to play with four Guys, you may know, you may not know. What happened is that the club date started to, to develop a format. In other words, I can almost tell you, every club date band started with one song, Just In Time. So, And then there were sets. And what happened, then your ability to play in this new kind of unit meant that you had to know the library. You had to know the tunes, and you had to keep up with what the Broadway shows that were coming around. Uh, you had to keep up with them. You know, Lee said your schedule. Your schedule is like teaching full time, right? And you did. You went. Did you go to college for music education? Did that kind absolutely? Of thing? Yeah, I right. got my degree, my master's at NYU in cool. music education. So. And then, and then, so you're doing that full time, playing three to five gigs a week, a weekend. 
that's a lot of work, right? At that did, did it feel, Did I mean, you were doing what you love. You know, that's what they tell me. They're like, at least you're doing what you love, right? Well, I felt a time came in my, by age 22, where I had to make a decision. Which way should the coin go? Is it education or a career in music? Mm-hmm. At that time, I was on the road I was recommended by a saxophone player who was, I believe, a cousin of Mickey Katz. Mm -hmm. That turning point, I was on the road with the show Bush Capades, which was (laughs) Mm -hmm. a very important show. Mickey Katz having been one of the main players with Spike Jones. Sure. If you know that Mickey was with Spike Jones, and he took it one step further by going back to his Jewish roots and taking different songs like Frankie Lane's Mule Train. Hey, giddy up. And he did, so he said, Shul Train, Shul Train. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And My did a whole. hate that music. Yeah, all right. So no, that. I, yeah. I was raised so, on that stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just telling you, at that point, I'm 22, 18-year-old kid named Joel Gray sitting on the train with me or on the plane, and he says, Ray, he says, be my music director, stick with me. He's 18, I'm 22. Wow. And I look at him and I say, Joel, that's not what I want for my life. I said, I like, I happen to enjoy teaching. And so I'm, that's what I started to talk about before. That's when the coin, heads or tails, which way will it fall? Mm-hmm. I decided that I wanted to do teaching. Yeah. But in spite of that, lo and behold, we finished Bush Capades. And a competing show opens up on Broadway named Bagels and Yaks. What? Not bagel. You don't know about Bagels and Yaks? No, that one I yeah. don't know about. All right. That was a competing show. Now, what was Bosch Capay's? It was a variety show. There, Larry Albert, a, a couple of comics, uh, maybe some singers, uh, Marty Drake. I, don't, I can mention ancient names, but it's not important to you. So, so Bagels and Yaks opens up. And I find myself doing a Broadway show at age 20, just came back from doing Bosch Capades. Bosch Capades opens up in Broadway down the, down the street. And we open up at the Forum, I believe, on Broadway. It was called The Holiday at the time or something. And we start this show, this Bagels and Yaks. And we started out with five musicians behind a scrim or six musicians. And then money, they were not making money at the gate. They dropped the third saxophone play immediately. Oh, yeah. So I think it was Danny and myself were left. Danny Rubenstein, we were both doing... Oh, wow, the other uh, also a <coughs> Yeah, and we're both doing bagels and yaks. And simultaneously at that time... My mother kept a record of it. I would get a telephone call in the morning at maybe 7 o'clock from PS50. We need a sub. Could Ray Musiker come here? My mother would take the gig for me, and she'd wake me up and say, Vremela, you have to go to this school. Wow. In other words, I started the other way. My regular gig at age 22 was a Broadway show, but I did three teaching days that week, or maybe four. But then, of course, the show closed, and 
I started teaching more per diem days. It's called per diem teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, le- I learned so much about teaching just by moving around and meeting different kids, different backgrounds. It sounded like you were able to make a really clear decision for yourself and feel really confident in that decision. Exactly. Which is really nice because that doesn't always happen in, in, when musicians face that kind of coin, when the coin's on its well, side, well, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I told you the story and the, the catalyst was a guy named Sam Musica. Uh-huh. That's it. I mean, that's uh, with a brother like that, uh, it's very di- so difficult. Tell, so tell a little more about your brother. Now, Sam, rest his soul, was a titan in music. Mm-hmm. He arranged for Jim Kropa. He was known for the definitive clarinet solo on After You've Gone, which with Roy Eldridge, which became a jazz classic. He's the player in the family. I see. But but to make peace with that and find absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's listen that's an accomplishment in itself. kind of backed me into teaching and later within a couple of years I got to the point where I took my first semester assignment now playing really had to be put on the sideline mm-hmm. because I was a, a five-day regular it's called permanent sub so I sidled into teaching and now the whole club day thing had to be on a back burner and are you playing any Jewish music at this point, or are you really less, less, less and less? Because the whole music business for Stephen Scott and all these new entrepreneurs, you had to know how to play Havana Yeah, great and tune. maybe great tune. We just yeah. got asked to do that. Uh, uh, Michael and I got yeah Havana Gila. Well, the yeah. other ones Havana Shalom Aleichem. The way I'm even saying it, I'm showing. You're getting the inference, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and that was Jewish music. It was before Bashan, not nah, even before there was a, a whole new, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, vocal. So, how old are you? And like, uh, do you have family? Like, when is this? Or family is in the picture already? Or what's going on? Like, what's going on with you when? You well, I didn't. I was not married yet. I got uh, married okay. when I met that lovely lady. That's another story. But in other words, by this time. I'm getting more serious into t- teaching, including regular semester jobs. And because of my brother's confidence in me, he was able to let me be the sub of a sub. Now, this is where it really gets interesting. There was a WEV, was it WEVD or W, not N- HN. N-E-W? N-E-W. Now I got it. W-N-E-W. Thanks, Lee. 
WNEW at that time had what was known as a house band. Mm. And a house band was a set like some of the the real hippest play, players around New York would be in the house band. There was a leader of the, the house band. Nat. And Nat Brown, Nat Brown was a clarinet and tenor sax player. Mm. And Nat was, a, a very, he, he can be like a, a Goodman clone. And there were a couple of guys that, like Saul Yeager, that would, Benny Goodman clones, never up to what the great Goodman did. But they were able to play. Nat Brown was one of these guys able to hold the chair and they would get, they would do something called Bird's Eye, the Bird's Eye Show. Now, you know Bird's Eye product, know the, the, the peas and everything? The frozen, frozen vegetables? Fro yeah. Okay, there was a, a Bird's Eye radio show, 15 minutes, mm. where you played some hot stuff, some hot jazz. And uh, they'd have sometimes a guest artist. And Teddy Wilson, the great Teddy Wilson, Roy Ross. Roy, Roy Ross, Roy Ross was the NEW house band leader. Mm -hmm. And these were very competent musicians. There were times that Nat Brown could not do the bird's eye show. You know who he called? Sam Musica. And there were times that Sam could not do it. And if my brother had enough confidence in me to go in to play WNEW and to get, by the way, I would drive a car from Williamsburg and leave an hour before and find a parking spot on 47th Street yeah. and empty streets on after five o'clock. You know, it it was doable. Just like it, today. It was a right. New York City. So I'm, like I'm talking about way, way, way back era yeah, yeah. where I was able to, and, and I would sub for Sam subbing for Nat Brown. And these were like, this was, sounds really exciting, like yeah, exciting so, people. And, and now you asked me earlier about, did you play jazz? I was glad enough to, to be able to emote the melody because they were playing ridiculous like tempos, like yeah. uh, the world is waiting for the sun for the sunrise. There's a song, dee da 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 do da 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 da. But if you go do 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 like that, yeah. and and who walks in to play for the session? Teddy Wilson. Mm. So in other words, I had just about enough chops and nerve to play with Teddy Wilson. This sweet, wonderful, he was appreciative of what I did and said, like, nice man, you know. Yeah. Like, so I had that credit in my, that my brother had enough confidence. So this whole thing, in one sense, can be called Sam's confidence in his kid brother. Now, Nat Brown, very fine clarinet player, tells me, he says, you know, he says, I have a nephew. He says, this kid's a pain in the neck. He, he thinks he's Benny Goodman. And mm -hmm. he says, I, he says I, I don't have time to teach him. Would you teach him? I said, where does he live? Manhattan Beach. The next thing I know, I have a student named Eddie Daniels. Oh, yeah, oh. some people have heard of him, I think. Oh. Yeah, now he if won a couple heard, Grammys, right? Yeah. Yeah, now Eddie was my student for a second. Like, but this, that's why you remind, I told you, 
This is the Eddie Daniels song, even shorter. I saw this guy for one, yeah, for three, four. It was very short. It was fourteen. Yeah, but with Eddie. Eddie, I started to teach him. When I saw him at the club later, he says, he said, hey, Ray, he says, you're the guy that kept playing those long tones. Play those long tones. It's really and, never bad advice, yeah, though. No, <laughs> no, but anyway, the Eddie Daniels story, mm. I'll make it short. I gave him my best shot as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And when I say challenging, he was, he was the kind of, he challenged me already. He looked at me and he said, Ray, he says, what's this fourth tenor part all about? He says, can you explain, how do you, how do you play a fourth tenor part in a band of faking? Faking, okay. Yeah, how do you fake a fourth tenor part? I said, Eddie, let me see now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like After a, a, a close to a year, I said, Eddie, and I told his parents, I said, I've run out of teach. Oh, wow, yeah. I said, I can't teach anymore. I think I'm going to take the lead and discuss a little bit about some of the highlights. Here I am teaching school, and I get a call to do a recording with Terry Gibbs, who is Saul Gabenko's kid brother. And I knew, like old man Faberman, there was old man Gabenko. Every time I say old man, that means it's my father's gender. Sure. He was called old man Gabenko, who had two sons. Both of them played drums. Yeah. The father, old man Gabenko, was a fiddle player, but his both sons were drummers. And Saul Gabenko became a, a club date band leader named, under the name Saul Gay. Mm -hmm. He had a kid brother named Terry Gabenko. Julius Gabenko became Terry Gibbs. There you right? go. Okay. Now, he gets an idea that he wants to combine two rhythmic streams at the same time. He wants a jazz drummer, and he wants his drama, his, the other drummer, to be his older brother, 
Sal Gabanko, while they're playing, you'll hear and to the jazz drum, and the other guys playing. So it was an idea of the his concept was to take Jewish music and jazz style. But anyway, to condense the story, Terry Gibbs, he became a vibes player. He's playing vibes, not drums. Right. He has a jazz drummer, and the whole thing is going to be about Terry playing Yiddish and Mama, uh, and uh, any of the songs of the time. And one of them is the Valachol. Remember, which one? The D minor. Yeah, the D minor Valachol. Yeah, yeah. So now, the two highlights of the album, whoever did the liner notes, wrote the following. I'm Terry, forgive me. He said, before you listen to Terry and, and the whole thing, he says, listen, go to the Yiddish Mama track and just start with Ray Musiker playing that that soulful part. You know, you know, I just oh, I'm just going to do 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 I'm done. Uh-huh. That's it. I, just, I played eight measures of Yiddish Mama, and in his liner notes, he says, go listen to that. That's great. Yeah. And so, we all know that Terry is one of the greatest. And he's he's a fantastic, and he played with... Uh, Buddy DeFranco. Right? Buddy DeFranco, very tied. So here, I'm coming in. This is, uh, I'm a school teacher. Yeah. By, by the way, would you share with uh, the gentleman... Who produced the session and who el- who was on piano? Who was the producer? I'm coming. I'm very famous, legendary oh, producer. Oh, uh, Quincy Jones. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. When when I played, when I did oh, that. Oh my goodness! Wow. How would you like? Like you're doing a beautiful service for for this project. You are. You don't have to be there. You you can be there, mm-hmm. and you're honoring me, and I feel immensely honored by it. But you're not the first one because Quincy Jones held the microphone in front of me playing Yiddish Mama. That is wild. John Coltrane's wife, Alice Haygood. That record, yes. Alice Alice Coltrane. Haygood, named with the the name on the album was Alice McCord. McCord. She was not yet married to Train.
Now I'm I'm gonna tell you the Brighton Beach memoirs story. This okay. Is, yeah. This is yeah because actually what with what we're showing you is that I did not have a career in music. I had a career in music. The contradiction is I'm teaching school. I had a career as a high school band, dance band music teacher. But Wonderful. in that time, I waltz stepped out of, and I was able to waltz into the professional world and meet some of the top players. And I'm getting there, not because I'm one of the top saxophone players, recording artists, because I have the Klezmer background and the and, connections and, from your family and your grow your, your well, entire life. You just know? the fact that they needed someone that can do something at the right time. Now, when I retired, we're up to I think we're up to eighty-two, and I stopped teaching. I had thirty-two cumulative years enough for me to say I'm jumping ship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I was very happy to do so because I saw the best of teaching with the best of kids and even when they were not the best of kids i still gave them my my attention and care but then i just i wanted out i found that i'm back in club dates like my timing couldn't be better you feel like a little bit like a time warp almost uh, like yeah yeah like yeah i i left teaching now i'm welcomed and I'm capable. Yeah. So that was one aspect. Simultaneously, there's this whole rebirth of uh, Hasidic music. Mm -hmm. And I find that I'm out of the loop. So two things were timed in the 80s. There was a little rebirth of society music out mainly in Jersey and also the beginning of not the beginning, it was already going, but I had to kind of wheedle into the Hasidic business, which is not a Hasidic business. It was a modern Orthodox and a lot of very posh jobs at Belmont Plaza, the Plaza Hotel, you name it. All the, all the big hotels the were having Jewish weddings right after I retired, something around maybe 84, 85. We did... Neshama, which was a Hasidic club date band. Right. Neshama Orchestra. Mike decided, the leader, decided that he wanted to produce a Klezmer album. That album has a, my doina. The doina opens up. Ba, 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 bum. Ba, 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 bum. And then I go into the doina. Yeah. But that introduction, Universal Studio needed some music for the Friday night scene in Brighton Beach Memoirs. There's a very important part in that scene. And they went looking and they saw the album cover, maybe. Maybe the album cover was the hook because it, it, they see the old fashioned car and the whole thing. But they heard my doina and they bought it.
even throughout all this time, when the time comes, you have something to say in a klezmer idiom. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's, I think, is the, the crux of the whole thing is, is that I had a high school career teaching music, but when I had to take a day off from teaching mm. and go do a record date, mm -hmm. I was there and, and I, I hope I did the job well. I mean, I think the, uh, I think the resume, the CV says it all. You know, um, so speaking of albums, before we get to like really talking about the Klezmer revival, I actually want, I think it's maybe, is it okay to go back and talk about Tons a little bit? I mean, Absolutely. I think I like, mean, I, so, so this is, I want to I I turn it over to my good friend and co-conspirator Michael Winograd for a second. Well, the, I mean, I'm going to let you ask the majority of the questions because you're, you're very good at, but, at like, asking questions. But it's funny that, the, A, I didn't know that's the, the story that that, song got used for for the movie however i was doing a big clean out of my house the other day and found that record and put it on uh and it was i hadn't listened to it and the neshama record the neshama record i have probably haven't listened i hadn't heard it in a good 20 years uh and i put it on and that doina especially the opening of the doina i thought i hear a it, there's something about how certain songs on tants have this kind of cinematic opening parts. Uh, well, and Sam these, and I thought alike in, the, these, in these, that sense. You know, these fanfare-esque uh, yeah, kind of yeah. opening, like at the beginning of a bum, 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 you know, like that. Yeah, yeah, and well, it reminded me of that, even though much of the New York Klezmer album is, you know, pretty straight ahead, uh, uh, you know, songs that have been recorded a lot. That moment for me, uh, was you know you hear the connection to the record that was made thirty years before. So so Taunts is a fifty six, right? Uh, recorded, that? recorded fifty five, came out fifty six. Okay, so you are twenty nine, something like that. Most likely. Yeah, yeah and right. and you're playing with your old and, and your older brother asks you to uh, to be on this big record. Now, was there a sense that so for us, it's a big it looms large in the history of the music right it does i think mostly for the quality of it but also because first of all it's an it's a full album that's pretty rare for older klezmer music to have a full album was there a sense that you were going to make a big statement like this is a big record or was it like hey i got a record date coming out will you play on it i felt that this was a, a perfect documentary of the style and not a conflict but the style of two important clarinet players right and they're both being held up for the for people to hear side by side and one is it's not saying who's better right it's just the it's so uh, amazing that you can have two people on a record and it, it provokes so much listening and questioning. It felt like something important was happening. Absolutely. I I felt that I was being allowed to be part of history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I had the utmost respect for Dave. Utmost respect. I have a book of his Bulgars, and when I saw him as, as an older man, in, out in Brighton Beach or something. He, he was living there with his wife, second wife. You must know. The, and he inscribed it to Raymond, he wrote, to Raymond. You know, 
the, the best clarinet player in New York. So what I'm saying, that there was a mutual respect between them, but there was also, my, my brother felt that, I can show you up, you know, a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you a little. Mean, yeah, he's I, like, I've got something yeah, to say, yeah, too. Yeah. No, but all in a good way. Yeah. And the album, of course, is... It's, says it all yeah for sure so how did you make this album was it in a what kind of studio was it in like were these were the band people people you knew uh, i think these are how all from days? from studio musicians uh-huh all studio musicians okay as far as the band members the only other band member other than you and your brother and dave that i knew of before was irving on drums was irving gratz on drums yeah. The rest of everyone were, were musicians I hadn't heard of, so I figured they were studio musicians or guys. You know, brother. Irving Gratz, you know, he was, yeah, he he was Dave's, Dave's, Dave's guy. Yeah. drummer. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of, I mean, what, you know, I think of those pictures of studios from, was it like a big studio? No, it was one of the, like NOLA, was one of the important studios, I think in the 30s. But it was a professionally done completely. Mm -hmm. How many? Do you remember how many days you were able? Like, what was the process? Did you go through rehearsals and like, like was it a long recording session? Did you have to do everything in one day? Like, I think or, I think it was a one day thing. Wow, yeah, really? Yeah, ah, that's pretty good. So, so, so yeah. what? It's like everything two to three takes, maybe. There, there may have been some one takers also, but these were master players. Right. Uh, they don't... So. Was the album Sam's idea? I think so. And did he himself have aspirations to make a pretty grand klezmer recording in a way that hadn't been done or wasn't being done or in ways that he felt like since he was such a a um a large scope musician within the jazz world that he could do and others maybe couldn't do. Uh, I think he had some kind of nostalgic feeling for his adolescence and he knew knew this music and he felt that this is the best occasion where he can measure it up to dave mm. dave was a straight ahead he was like what ethel merman is to a broadway show song that's what dave was to the clarinet and i that i learned from him that melody, it's, melody. Uh, it's inflect don't over ornamental the music either. It's your your sound that you're trying to do. And Sam had it. Uh, I I can listen to tons, and I I know my brother's sound. Sure. It's not it's not my sound. I think it's. But we all have our own thumbprint. Mm. So that's it. Yeah. And the Tons album, of course, affected me affected me, I should say, and the fact that I, I knew my place. Mm. I knew my place. I knew I'm playing third clarinet. Like there's a second banana, so I was third banana in the bunch. Well, you know, with a bunch like that, But a though, good bunch to be third banana in. I'd say so. Bunch. Um, and maybe this would help transition it to uh, Matai and to just thinking about composition in general, but um, there's a number of aspects of Tantz that stand out. Some of it is um, the fact that you have Dave Tarras playing really well, but he's he has these great orchestrations around him, which is something that he hadn't well, had. Well, Sam, Sam did that. Which for Sam's him. doing. Yeah. You had just a fantastic band, a, a recording in hi-fi, a cohesive album 
that the, the pieces kind of related to each other. But uh, for me, one maybe the aspect that stands, stands out the strongest is Sam's compositions and how they clearly, he had a foot in the jazz world and a foot in the klezmer world in conceiving of them, but there really was no one doing it so progressively as he was at that time. Right. And and I, I don't know, I mean, I'm not exactly sure the question that I want to ask about it, but I do want, I would, I, I would like to hear about at least if no one else's reaction, your reaction, and, and if there were others to his style of composing these very jazz-influenced klezmer tunes, but that to the ear seems so within um, the genre. Well, number one, Sam was a, a master harmonist for his time. And he also had the creative spark so like even in the Sam in the Sam Spilt in that Tukuno the Fast thing, the whirlwind, when he when he goes into that low register, he's playing a, an F Phrygian, G Fregish on clarinet, and he lands up with an A flat minor chord. That an is F -sharp. unbelievable. Yeah. Now maybe a defining moment of the album, perhaps. All right. You see yeah, now perhaps. you're I feel the same thing as a composer. And to me, that was the, like, wow, how the hell did he land up there? It's like my E-flat minor chord for the cantor over there. Yeah. Where you, that's where the spark, uh, Dave, Dave wrote some things also. Yeah, he, yeah a lot of them are, are really like finger busters. Yeah, yeah. I have, <laughs> do you know Dave's thing? I think I have, but the spark of of you touching upon what you're doing, what I'm still trying to do, which I tried to do with the Matai album. You have always composed, right? Uh, yes, yes, I, and, I've always tried. And 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 a Jewish sound or something has always been part of your compositional Absolute. voice. The voice always has the hidden clarinet Jewish sound, but it's mine. Right. Like when I played that bossa nova thing. I'm not speaking Jewish in notes, but yet I'm putting the sound as if it were Jewish words or plaintive words, plaintive can you talk through your instrument? So then, so then you get this chance. When, when did you? How did you this? This did you have an opportunity to make an album, or did you have the material? Like what? What led to the creation of the Amatai album? Well, I I had my hand at producing an album. There was a company called Cameo, uh, and I was the pseudo. Name was Bobby Silver Orchestra. <laughs> Oh my! That's something I composed when I was at Madison. That's your tune. That's oh my! Absolutely. You play it also? Yeah. Or a Zik? It's a family affair. I am so thrilled to know that 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 lives. That song to a 
40-piece ensemble at Plus Canada three years ago. I do, 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 you have the C So I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something autistic, and it's more, not even klezmer, as much as Ray Music composes a klezmer album. Yeah. As you should. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that's And that's what the Matai was all about. Who was your rhythm section? This guy was... Uh, the album is really about father and son. Uh-huh. Very much so. So, yeah, you, had, you, you found out you had a good accompanist. Uh, he was the other voice, the important other voice. Mm. That was Dad's quartet with Lee Musiker, Harry Max, and Rick Cutler, and that is 28 years old that's one generation old now and you, i'm sure that the two of you and that ray and lee this is speaking in the third person had worked together before i mean you obviously you know you taught him originally and something so you had a, you had a good well our paths kind of crossed but he had his whole career sure. ahead of him and so like the compositions on matai were they similar to the ones we heard today like it's kind of a mix of styles and but always with that you know, you this, can feel... this is this is even, if I may say, more sophisticated mm -hmm. than uh, the Matai album. Oh, cool! Right, but the style is where I am harmonically. Yeah. In other words, out like uh, what I did for the Cantor, the uh, Elohina Tsar, hush my uh, hush my lips. Mm -hmm. you now that one has some very usable contemporary things but it's still in the tradition so you're talking about two different new comp sets yeah. of compositions your vocal and your instrumental of both which happened this week yeah is that right absolutely yeah so this was was that okay so i guess my last question about matai would be was this the first time that you so i'll tell you a story about me is that i you know, I do a lot of different things. Mostly artistically, I have like a jazz side, which mostly is sort of on the wilder end of things. And then I have this klezmer side, which weirdly ends up being on the more traditional end of things. And that's kind of always a funny... And for me, I was always like, well, that's odd, but I'm just going to go for it. And then... But I also kept them separate for a long time, right? And it's only now that I'm starting to do projects. You know, I still want to do one side purely and then the other side purely... But to let it all hang out, so to speak, you know, and just yeah. sort of like not be so concerned about where things come from. Or right, Just right. say like these are sounds of me. Let was it this... mix and let it blend. Now, was this, a... it... had you done that before or was this sort of a breakthrough in that way? Are you talking about the instrumental composition? Yeah, no, I'm saying, no, I'm saying with like Matai, was, was this sort of... You, would you characterize it as that? Because you, you said it's like Ray music or just doing Ray music or music. Well, I did have a plan in mind, like the uh, Sephardic. If I have the audacity to say that I'm writing a rhapsody, a Spanish rhapsody, mm -hmm. what makes it Sephardic? I tried, number one, to get a certain sound. Um, you, know the, you know the Sephardic rhapsody? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to set what I know from life's experience of what what does it mean to to be Sephardic as opposed to Ashkenazi uh -huh. in terms of the linguistic conversion into music. Mm -hmm. So I 
I tried to write that and justify it. Now I got myself into trouble. I'm, I want to write a, a three or four part work. Yeah. So in that, you asked me about the compositional. These are, as a composer, you go places and then you don't know if you if you're going in the right direction, if you're doing any kind of creativity, you question yourself. And you get to that point where you say, what am I doing with this? Am I wasting my time? But I did manage to get, how many movements is the Sephardic? Three or? I think it's three movements. I don't try to get too way out. Mm -hmm. If there's a good melody, a good melody does not have a date on it doesn't say this is 16th century or this is 21st first century. A good melody is meant for eternity. So I undertook an idea of trying to really be creative through the clarinet and compose a Sephardic Rhapsody. And then I also wrote, so I started to do programmatically, I'm writing The Circus. Mm, yeah. Now that's not a bulgar, it's a faster to it. It's more like what you would say a gallop in historically, any of the Kabalevsky or any of the, when they write uh, any music with so a gallop. Yeah. Now, but calling it a circus, the circus gallop. Why, I mean, I'm giving you a composer's thoughts in terms of how, because you're into it yourself. in 2019 i'm assuming you've been playing and composing at least for some portions of the in-between time last 20 25 27 years but there's there's a it seems like right now you're in a sort of creative state you wrote these pieces I, for yeah i don't want to end on a, a sad note no but uh a lot of my creativity over the last five to seven years had to be pushed over to his side, so I was taking care of a very dear lady. Yeah. Right. Which actually does take a lot of creativity in itself, I'm sure. Well, I'm just making that point. Yeah. That now there's a gap. Yeah. 
And as I said, my inspiration came from Danny. This is Danny. Listen, listening to him. Specify Cantor Danny Mendelssohn. Yeah, going to shul, and he's singing the same set of lyrics week after week. The, the text is a text. Yeah. The liturgy is a liturgy. So that inspiration set me thinking, and then that lent to me trying to do a, a rhythm, Lador Vidar, mm -hmm. rather than all the other ones. Now I'm into a new head, I'm, and I'm thinking about words, and words that have meaning. Yeah. And the words trigger or motivate you to try to set music for those thoughts. Now you're starting to think how a man, maybe in the 14th century, came up with an idea to write something like the Elohim Tsar. The whole idea of someone that, look, every, now, now we're talking, I'm moving on into a little bit of religious philosophy, but each morning when a Jewish person gets up, the first utterance out of his mouth has to be Moda Ani, which means I thank you, God. Mm -hmm. What are we doing? We're thanking God that we are opening our eyes and we're still breathing and we didn't pass on. So the whole idea of the liturgy, the the, the words, Elohinitzer grabbed me. I no, the first was the Dorvador. I wanted to and it opened up a whole new vista for me as trying to write with someone's voice. I, I wrote things with my clarinet voice in mind. Yeah. And now I decided, oh, I want to write things with Danny's voice in mind. Vador, 
So the challenge for writing left being instrumental and pretty much to see what can I do with the sitter, looking what's in the prayer book. Yeah. So we we got a couple of good balls rolling here. Yeah, well, this is what's really great about it is like, you know, you're still finding new new inspiration and you're trying, you're getting to new vistas. A life in music, right? Like is, 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 is both working, it's creating, <laughs> It's researching. It's you know living out who you are, right? And sure. and you never get to stop doing that. You get but to the first going. thing, if you learn your name, is musicer. Yeah. And other kids. Well, that say, does help. I think the last thing I'll say is like you've been around this whole klezmer thing as it's changed from a dance music to a concert music. Exactly. And from a professional music to a folk music, which I actually think is another transition that has been made. And I just would love to hear. You know, what's it been like to live through that? You know, you talked about assimilation. I remember hearing you talk about assimilation with someone in the other room. And, you know, you've lived about as unassimilated a life as we get to live in this country. You know, whatever that means. So to live, you know, live this life with your Jewishness up front in your music, with your Jewishness up front in your life in a lot of ways, and then to watch how all that what means to be Jewish and what Jewish music means change all around you. And I don't mean to get hung up on what Jewish music changed to be, but really what this music that's come to known as klezmer changed all around you. Like, well, yeah, what's that? Just well, what's that been like? The word has gone through a historical metamorphosis. Sure. Completely. I told you from the beginning when to be a klezmer was to be a Hennington Hall guy outside looking for a chasana for, for Saturday night. Yeah. And it went from that, went through the phase of dying out, hardly, be, I'm summarizing now, sure. hardly being used on club dates because it became Havana Gila and Havenu Shalom Aleichem, period. That was it. That was how little was needed of it until finally it it came to the point where you had nice young people that were interested in it. Yeah. Like the whole Klez camp, the, wow, there are people that want to 
And suddenly I got a label. Oh, he's one of the surviving klezmers. The challenge was there. So as I told you, I had to re-immerse myself and reinvent myself in one sense. And and not not only reinvent, but to justify the title. If I'm one of the so-called renowned klezmers, hey man, you better play like one. Mm. And you better have something to show. That's where this guy comes in and says, Dad, you, you better you better get the chops together. Well. Because I don't know if we've exhausted the thing. By the way, you've done a beautiful job. You know, Thank you. You know how to loosen people up. Oh, good. I really appreciate that. Well, I do think that we did it. I think that we really covered an unbelievable amount of stuff. You know, I think that, you know, people are going to get to hear the music that you made today and also that music that you've made over the course of your career. And I think that it's the way that you've talked about reinventing yourself, the way that you've stayed true and and followed your heart whether it's even deciding to teach or all these different things and all that's led you to i think it's just it's it's a really important thing for us to be to be able to know and it's honestly it's it's a pretty miraculous that we get to do this well in in summary i would like to tell you how appreciative i am number one to the upstairs the fact that i have survived to this point there are not that many people this age that are just yeah. that just are that they're not around, and the fact that I'm even able to rekindle and and get my chops to work a little bit is is a blessing from above, and it's it's been a good ride. In every I have I look back at, at a life and cherish each memory mm-hmm. and now i look forward to still cherishing each god-given day that's given to me yeah now, now there are words of someone who has his act together there you have it my conversation with ray musiker his son lee musiker and my good bud michael winograd i had such a good time talking to ray and hearing all about his life and his music what a ride he's been on and he's still going strong he's playing back there with lee on a tune that they recorded the same day we did this interview it's called ray's dream I know it's going to make this podcast really long, but I'm going to let it all happen. I'm going to leave it all in there. It's good music. You should check it out. And it's music that's being made by a master musician who is still going strong. 93 years old. Amazing. It's an honor and privilege to be able to talk to, know, and play music with people like that. I really don't have a whole lot more to say, but I want to thank again everybody who's involved in this Ray Musiker 93rd Birthday Project, the Living Musical Legacy Birthday Project. That's Ray, his son Lee, who went above and beyond making sure that we had the best pastrami and egg salad a man could ask for. And Cantor Daniel Mendelssohn, Michael Winograd, and Pete Ruszewski 
for making all this, and also Ray's family who was there and supporting him and celebrating with him that day. It was a really special experience, and I hope that you got some of that special feeling through this interview. So that's basically all I got. I'm just going to leave you all to groove out to this great music. And if you stay on the line, so to speak, I actually threw in another piece by Ray, his Elohai Nitsor with cantor Daniel Mendelssohn and Lee Musiker, because it's just that good. You got to check it out. So stay on the line, listen to that. This seems almost a bit silly to say, but I really hope you're all doing well. And if you're not, I hope that you're able to feel at least connected, because it's tough out there. There's no joke about that. But we do have each other, and we've got this music that brings us together. I'm so amazed by the connection and the way the Klezmer community shows up for each other. And so if you're, if you're new to our community, welcome. If you've been here for a long time, I'm so glad to be in this community with you. And that we get to celebrate people like Ray Musica. All right. That's enough for me. You got some music to check out, so stick around and enjoy, and good Shabbos.
Now it's totally swinging. Oh. 
Was hören?